Hello, and welcome to the June 2023 HRO2 podcast. I'm Jeannie Pula and Editor-in-Chief. We have a nice lineup of articles this month. The first article is from our Global Voices section. This submission category considers papers representing arrhythmia care around the world, representing the practice experience of our colleagues, with an emphasis on low- and middle-income countries, health resource-constrained populations, marginalized or poorly represented populations in all countries, region-specific unique diseases, and challenges to healthcare delivery. Today's article is from our colleagues in South Africa and is first authored by Dr. Mikoko and is titled Diagnosis, Management Patterns, and Outcomes of Cardiac Sarcoidosis in South Africa. In this study, authors from South Africa sought to determine contemporary diagnoses, management, and outcome of cardiac sarcoidosis. They reviewed data from January 2000 through December 2021, looking at the diagnostic tests used to make the diagnosis and the types of therapy used. Only 22 patients were diagnosed with cardiac sarcoid, with more being diagnosed after the year 2016. These patients' mean age was 45 years. For 15 patients, the diagnosis of sarcoid was made when cardiac sarcoidosis was diagnosed, but for the remainder, it was an additional diagnosis that included now cardiac sarcoid. The majority of this group had had pulmonary sarcoidosis already diagnosed. 13 of the 22 patients presented also with heart block, 10 patients with ventricular arrhythmias, and 4 patients with heart failure. 5 of the 22 patients underwent endomyocardial biopsies, all of which were non-diagnostic. 8 endobronchial ultrasound-guided biopsies of thoracic lymph nodes were positive for sarcoidosis and importantly ruled out tuberculosis. Therapy included steroids in 14 patients, 7 were given azathioprine, and 9 were treated with amiodarone. 16 of the 22 patients received an ICD. Interestingly, no deaths occurred at a mean follow-up of 65 months. Cardiac sarcoidosis is increasingly being recognized in South Africa. We thank our colleagues for having submitted this paper describing the increasing diagnosis of cardiac sarcoid in South Africa. The diagnostic rates are likely to increase over time, and it's important to distinguish pulmonary sarcoidosis from pulmonary tuberculosis, which is more endemic in South Africa than in other countries. The next paper title is Impact of Tag Index and Local Electrogram for Successful First-Pass Cable Tricuspid Isthmus Ablation. This is by Dr. Manabu Kashawagi and colleagues. This is a retrospective analysis that evaluates the optimal value of the ablation index for cable tricuspid isthmus ablation for prediction of successful first-pass ablation. The patient population includes 100 consecutive patients undergoing a CTI linear ablation at the Wakayami Medical University Hospital in Japan between January 2021 and June of 2022. The investigators used the CARDL3 mapping system for all patients, and all patients had pre-procedural CT scanning. The acquired CT images were reconstructed in different planes to collect data on the length of the CTI, the depth of the CTI, the distance from the right coronary artery to the right atrium, the height of the eustachian ridge, and the angle between the CTI and the IVC. In addition, the eustachian ridge was measured from its base to its distal extremity in the plane passing through the center of the IVC. Bipolar and unipolar signals, and the indifferent electrode being at the level of the IVC for the unipolar signals, were acquired from the right ventricle to the IVC during continuous pacing at a 600 millisecond cycle from the proximal coronary sinus. Next, voltages at the three sites on or closest to the first-pass CTI ablation site were retrospectively measured and averaged. The modified ablation index was then calculated as the ablation index divided by the bipolar or unipolar voltage. 
CTI ablation was performed in a standard fashion, starting at the tricuspid valve and continuing to the IVC, using point-by-point -point application and using a 3.5 millimeter open irrigated tip ablation catheter and RF ablation sites were tagged. For the first 50 patients termed the preliminary group, the RF energy used was 30 to 35 watts, the saline irrigation flow rate was 17 to 30 milliliters per minute, the duration at each RF site was a maximum of 40 seconds, and the goal was to aim for an AI equal to or greater than 400 milliseconds at the anterior side of the isthmus and an AI equal to or greater than 400 milliseconds for the posterior side of the isthmus. Further, the goal was to limit the distance between two neighboring RF sites to equal to or less than 6 millimeters. In the second group of patients, termed the modified group, the goal was to achieve an AI equal to greater than 500 milliseconds for the anterior side and equal to or greater than 400 milliseconds for the posterior side. When the ablation index was reached in each group, then the ablation was terminated. Bidirectional conduction block was confirmed using differential pacing from the proximal coronary sinus and from the inferior lateral wall of the right atrium. Double potentials were confirmed, and if incomplete conduction block identified, further ablation was performed. The results of this study showed that in the modified group, the first pass rate of success was higher than in the preliminary group, 88% versus 62%, and that was a significant p-value of less than 0.01, although there were no differences in the average bipolar and unipolar voltages at the CTI line. The office then performed a multivariate logistic regression analysis, which showed that ablation with an AI equal to or greater than 500 milliseconds on the anterior side was the only independent predictor of first pass success with an odds ratio of 4.17, p-value less than 0.01. The authors also noted that both the bipolar and unipolar voltages were higher at sites without conduction block than at sites with conduction block. The cutoff values for predicting conduction gap were equal to greater than 1.94 millivolts and equal to or greater than 2.33 millivolts, respectively, and with an AUC of 0.655 and 0.679, respectively. The authors have three conclusions. The first, incomplete conduction block sites of CTI ablation were more frequently observed at the anterior site, representing two-thirds of the CTI segment, than at the posterior site. Second, in the preliminary group, the procedure was performed tar targeting an ablation index of equal to or greater than 450 milliseconds on the anterior side and an AI of equal to or greater than 400 milliseconds on the posterior side, whereas in the modified group, the target AI for the anterior side was modified to equal to or greater than 500 milliseconds. And in doing so, the first pass rate of success was improved. And finally, in third, there were no differences in the mean bipolar and unipolar voltages at the CTI line between the preliminary and the modified groups. However, the bipolar and unipolar voltages were higher at sites without conduction block than at sites with conduction block. The next paper's title is Transesophageal Pacing Studies Reduce Readmission but Prolong Initial Admission in Infants with Supraventricular Tachycardia, a Cost Comparison Analysis by Dr. Daniel Berry and colleagues. As the title states, this is a study of infants who have SVT at two different clinical sites, and studies improved methods for their management. The authors evaluated the usefulness of transesophageal pacing, or TEP, to guide SVT management and compare the results from one site which used TEP and the other which did not. All patients had no evidence of structural heart disease. Patients at the site using TEP underwent repeat TEP when medications were being uptitrated until SVT could not be further induced. The authors then compared the primary endpoints of length of stay and hospital readmission rates for breakthrough SVT within 31 days of discharge. In addition, a cost-effectiveness analysis was performed. 
A total of 131 patients were included from the two sites. One site included 59 patients while there were 72 included from the second site. Only one patient was readmitted for a recurrent SVT from the site that used the TEP studies. This is contrasted to 17 who were readmitted from the site that did not use TEP-guided medication choice and dosing. The median length of stay for the centers using the TEP studies was longer than the other center, 118 hours versus 66.9 hours. 21 of the 59 patients at the TEP site had more than one TEP study performed. The cost-effectiveness analysis showed that the use of TEP resulted in a probability-weighted cost of $45,531 per patient compared with $31,087 per patient at the site not using TEP studies. The author's main findings were first that readmission rates for infants with SVT who are medically treated are high when patients are treated with a selected medication dose, observed, and discharged. Second, by utilizing transesophageal pacing studies to guide medication therapy, the readmission rates can be significantly reduced. But finally, it needs to be taken into account that utilization of transesophageal pacing studies in this investigation were associated with greater costs even when readmission costs are included. The author's final conclusion is that the findings in this study may help physicians to determine if an observational approach only or an approach using TEP-guided medication management is the best approach for an individual patient. The title of the next paper is Atrial Flutter-Related Healthcare Use and Costs, an Analysis of a Nationally Representative Administrative Claims Database in the United States. First author is Dr. Deshmukh and colleagues. This is a study that looks at real-world data to evaluate the healthcare use and cost burden of incident atrial flutter using the Optum Clinformatics database from 2017 to 2020. The authors used two patient cohorts, one including patients who have had atrial flutter and a second group who have not had prior atrial flutter. The method of matching weights was used to identify balanced covariates. The outcome measures as assessed using logistic regression and general linear models included a 12-month all-cause and cardiovascular-related healthcare use, which was inclusive of inpatient, outpatient, and emergency room visits, and second, medical expenditures, which were compared between the matched cohorts. The atrial flutter group included 13,270 patients, and the non-atrial flutter cohort included 13,683 patients. The patient clinical characteristics included 71% who were at least 70 years of age, 62% were male and 22% were non-white. 80% of the atrial flutter cohort had atrial flutter-related outpatient visits, 37% of that group had inpatient visits, and 6% had emergency room visits. In addition, 12% had other medical visits. The atrial flutter cohort had a significantly higher healthcare use for both all-cause and cardiovascular-related emergency room visits. The relative risk for all-cause ER admissions was 1.14, and for cardiovascular ED admissions was 1.60. Similarly, when looking at all-cause inpatient visits, outpatient visits, emergency room visits, or other medical visits, the costs were significantly higher in the atrial flutter patients. The mean total health care costs per annum were nearly $22,000 higher among patients with atrial flutter compared to those without atrial flutter. This was $71,201 versus $49,418 respectively, with a p-value of less than 0 
The author summarized their findings as, first, the incremental burden of incident atrial flutter has not been previously examined. Second, that in their study, patients with atrial flutter had significantly higher healthcare utilization, including all costs and cardiovascular-related use, as well as medical expenditure burden compared to patients without atrial flutter. They conclude that their findings suggest considerable patient and public health burden is associated with atrial flutter. The next study addresses a very important and clinically practical subject. The title is Data Deluge from Remote Monitoring of Cardiac Implantable Electronic Devices and Importance of Clinical Stratification. First author, Danish Bawa. The authors rightly note that remote monitoring is now standard of care for follow-up of patients with cardiac implantable electronic devices, but that clinicians are faced with a data deluge resulting in an increasing clinical burden. The purpose of this study is to quantify this burden of data and explore how to prioritize the data. This analysis included 67 U.S. device clinics using the Octagos Health Remote Monitoring Service for following implantable loop recorders, pacemakers, ICDs, and CRT devices. An alert system was employed that only forwarded clinically relevant or alert transmissions to the clinical healthcare team. Alerts were coded according to their urgency, level 1, 2, or 3. 32,721 patients with CIEDs were included. Of these, 44% were pacemakers, 26% were ILRs, 16% were ICDs, and CRT pacemakers or ICDs represented another 14%. There were 9.1 transmissions per device per year with ILRs and 6.6 transmissions per device per year with ICDs and CRTDs. Pacemakers, including CRT pacemakers, accounted for 3.7 transmissions per device per year. When stratified for the type of a device, 60% of the ILRs were dismissed and only 15% of the records were forwarded to the provider with alerts. There were 116,874 transmissions from ICDs and CRTDs, of which 52% were dismissed and only 13% had alerts. Similarly, 59% of pacemaker transmissions were dismissed while only 11% were forwarded with alerts. Overall, out of nearly 400,000 total transmissions generated, 57% were evaluated and considered to be dismissible because they were redundant, repetitive, or a result of noise with device sensing. Out of the 43% of the transmissions that were not dismissed, only 13% had alerts while the remaining 30.6% were considered to be routine transmissions. The authors conclude that 57% of remotes were considered as dismissible and did not need to be sent to the clinicians for review. Further, of those transmitted for the clinical review, only 13% had clinical alerts. The authors suggested that the burden imposed by the data deluge can be decreased with appropriate screening methods, prioritizing those transmissions that require clinical evaluation. The next paper is titled Defibrillator Exchange in the Elderly by Dr. Henrik Andresen and colleagues. In this study, the authors evaluated the outcomes of ICD generator replacement in 506 patients aged 70 years of age and older. The primary outcomes were death from any cause, survival after appropriate ICD shock, or death without having had an ICD shock. The results were analyzed in two groups, age 70 to 79 and age 80 or older. Clinical characteristics identified no differences between the two age groups. The left ventricular ejection fraction was 35.6% versus 32.4%, a non-significant difference. 
The NYHA class was similar, with 17.1% being class 3 or 4 in the 70-79 to 79 year old group and 14.7% in the 80 and over group. Over 4.3 years of follow-up, and not surprisingly, 42.5% of patients in the septuagenarian group died compared to 79% in the octogenarian group. Death was significantly more frequent in both age groups than were appropriate ICD shocks. Amongst the 70- to 79-year-old group, 29% had an appropriate ICD shock for VT or VF prior to their generator replacement. Amongst the octogenarian group, 30% had prior ICD shocks. The authors then looked at the rates of appropriate shocks following the generator replacement according to whether or not they'd had prior appropriate shocks before the generator replacement. Amongst the septuagenarians, the rate of appropriate ICD shocks in those who had had prior appropriate shocks was 41%, and in those without prior shocks was 19%. In the octogenarian group, ICD shocks occurred in 22% of those who had had prior appropriate shocks compared to 17% who had not had prior appropriate shocks. Advanced heart failure, peripheral arterial disease, and advanced kidney disease, and this was true regardless of the age group. In terms of complications, pocket hematomas occurred in 3.1% in the septuagenarian group and two patients, or 1.9%, in the octogenarian group. A major complication requiring clinical interventions was hospital-acquired pneumonia in three patients in the septuagenarian group and two patients in the octogenarian group. There were no pocket infections and no deaths related to generator replacement. Also, there were no lead complications. Inappropriate ICD shocks occurred in 9% of the 70- to 79-year-old group before ICG exchange and 7% of those patients after ICD exchange. In the octogenarian group, inappropriate ICD shocks had prior occurred in 7% of those before the ICD generator exchange and 8% of the patients after the ICD exchange. The authors identify the following key findings. First, during follow-up of four years after ICD generator replacement for usual battery depletion indication, mortality was high in patients 80 years of age and older, 79%, compared with those 70 to 79 years of age, which was 42%. Death occurring without having had an appropriate shock was significantly more common than the rate of appropriate ICD therapy, and this observation was higher in the octogenarian group. Predictors of mortality were advanced heart failure, peripheral artery disease, and renal failure. Complication rates and inappropriate therapies were similar to those reported in other trials despite the advanced age of these patient cohorts. The next paper is a design paper. This is a special submission category. At HRO2, we encourage investigators to consider this journal for your design and methods papers. The title of this paper is Electrographic Flow-Guided Ablation in Redo Patients with Persistent Atrial Fibrillation, or FLOW-AF, Design and Rationale. The first author is Dr. Thomas Sealy Torok. This study reports the background, purpose, and methods for a study that will evaluate the reliability of electrocardiographic flow-guided algorithm technology using the ABLAMAP software, which identifies AF sources and its success at guiding ablation therapy in patients with persistent atrial fibrillation. The trial is designed as a prospective multi-center randomized clinical study enrolling 85 patients with persistent or long-standing persistent AF who have failed prior pulmonary vein isolation. 
The procedure will first check for intact PVI and perform touch-ups when indicated. And then the ECF mapping system is used in the patients. Patients will be stratified based upon the presence or absence of EGF-identified sources. If the EGF activity is equal to or greater than 26.5%, then those patients will be randomized one-to-one -to, -one to either no further therapy or ablation of EGF-identified extra PV sources of atrial fibrillation. Note that the no further therapy group would also already have undergone a check for intact PVI and touch-ups performed if needed. The primary safety endpoint of this study is freedom from serious adverse events related to the procedure through seven days following the randomization procedure. The primary efficacy endpoint is the successful elimination of significant sources of excitation with the target parameter being the activity of the leading source. This is an excellent design paper and the details of the full methodology are enclosed. This is a multi-center, multinational randomized trial and I encourage the listeners to read this. The next paper is a very comprehensive topics and review paper titled Cardial Neural Ablation, Where Are We At? by Dr. Jose Carlos Pachon. Patients with inappropriate sinus tachycardia and other syndromes of symptomatic periodic vagal tone, including vasovagal syncope, functional AV block, and functional sinus node dysfunction, can be very challenging to care for, often leading to pacemaker implantation in young patients. Other approaches, such as ablation of sinonodal areas for inappropriate sinus tachycardia, for instance, have been disappointing, with risk resulting in pacemakers in too high a percentage of patients. Cardial neural ablation has emerged as an alternative approach to highly symptomatic patients. This review paper includes a description of the pertinent anatomy, the evidence base for this procedure, and the therapeutic applications of this technology and knowledge gaps. This paper is followed by an editorial by an excellent and thoughtful Dr. Williams, Parker, and Brian Oshansky. This is titled, Autonomic Modulation, Getting It Just Right. Together, these two papers nicely cover this emerging technology. Well, this ends the June 2023 podcast for HRO2. Thank you so much for listening, and I will be back in a month to summarize the July issue.